Welcome to The Radical Therapist. We are now at episode number 105. I'm Chris Hoff, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Uh, we have a great one for you today. We're going to be meeting again with Dr. Anna Louise Keating around the recent release of the Enzel Duin Theory Handbook uh, from Duke University Press, and we're going to talk about Anna Louise's professional and personal relationship with Gloria Anzaldúa and uh, some post-oppositionality stuff. And so very excited for that. And But before we get there, I got two quick announcements. The first one being uh, some of you have been hearing me talk about the Encyclopedia of Radical Helping that's coming from uh, Thick Press, Julie Cho and Aaron Segal. And uh, so we've begun to gather entries for that. Um, and if you want to call, a look at the call, and you want to participate, contribute, all that kind of stuff, go to the Thick Press Medium uh, page, or you can go to the Radical Therapist Instagram page, and it's just uh, there's a link in the bio. So, and you can find out all the information. But we're beginning to gather entries for this playful new book intended to nourish and inspire practitioners and students of social work, family therapy, psychology, counseling, coaching, group facilitation, psychoanalysis, medicine, energy, and body work, birth and abortion doula work, youth work, art and movement therapy, social practice in the arts, mutual aid, and other helping and healing modalities. And it's just going to be a great project. I'm very excited about it So, and would like you to participate. I'm inviting you. And we're going to do some writing groups. If you have some hesitancy about writing, like I always do, yeah, uh, you know, we're going to be putting together some writing groups. These aren't crit critical groups or critique groups. These are just, you know, mutual support of each other as we uh, put together our entries into the ra the Encyclopedia of Radical Helping. So uh, you will have help. So if you're hesitant on on the edge, please, um, you know, reach out and and you'll and we'll support you know your efforts in, in contributing to the Encyclopedia of Radical Helping. And last announcement: I'm going to be well. As part of this, Thick Press is going to be at the uh, Printed Matter Book Fair in New York City, uh, which happens on uh, what's going to be running from October 13th through the 16th. And it's it's a very large, I think the largest art art book fair, but it's Printed Matters New York Art Book Fair. It'll be f at 5548 West 662nd Street. Uh, I'm going to be in New York City for this, um, and I'm excited about it. And I'm going to be doing a little thing on Saturday from 12 to 2, I think it is, at the Thick Press project space. Uh, so if you're hanging out in New York or you're around or whatever, please reach out and or come to the uh, Printed Matter Book Fair and come hang out with me. Uh, Thick Press has a project space there, so there's going to be uh, several topics that are going to be happening throughout the run of the fair, and that includes mutual aid organizing, friendship on death row, mapping social change and ecosystems, radical approaches to helping, of course, uh, care as a site of inquiry, and healing justice. So uh, you can see the themes happening, right? So come out for that. There's going to be a lot of great folks presenting, talking, doing their thing, and would love to see you there. At, I'm going to be in New York City, so come, come say hi. And uh, I think that's all the announcements I have. So let's get right to our guest. So... Anna Louise Keating is a professor of multicultural women's and gender studies at Texas Women's University. 
She is uh, the author most recently of the Ansel Duin Theory Handbook and one of my favorite books, Transformation Now Toward a Post-Oppositional Politics of Change. She worked with Gloria Anzaldúa for the last decade of Anzaldúa's life, editing, editing Anzaldúa's interviews uh, and co-editing with Anzaldúa This Bridge We Call Home, Radical Visions for Transformation. Since Anzaldúa's death, Keating has ed- edited several of Anzaldúa's books, most recently Light in the Dark, Luz en lo Oscuro, Rewriting Identity, Spirituality, Reality. Anna Louise's academic work focuses on transformation studies, Gloria Anzaldúa, Womanist Spiritual Activism, Post-Oppositional Thought, Medi- Multicultural Pedagogies, and U.S. Women of Colors Theories. Anna Louise is also a certified yoga instructor and teaches yin yoga several times each week at her worker-owned, social justice-focused yoga studio in Denton, Texas. Awesome. So without further ado, let's meet with Anna Louise. Hi, Anna Louise. Welcome to the Radical Therapist Podcast. Welcome back to the Radical Therapist (laughs) Podcast. Thanks. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's great to see you. And congratulations on the new book. Everybody, the Ansel Duan Theory Handbook is now out on Duke University Press. So congratulations on that. Thank you. Uh, But before we get into that, uh, you know, I think my first question for you is, um, I've never really heard the story. I was wondering if if we could start by you telling us a story, how your close professional and personal relationship with Gloria Anzadua came to be. Absolutely. Um, I'm going to frame it in the larger context of my life because I think it kind of uh, it kind of speaks to spiritual activism, which is one of Anzaldúa's key theories. I met Anzaldúa through her writing. It was at the very end of my graduate studies, and my my dissertation was actually on Ralph Waldo Emerson on his mm. epistemology. And um, I came across Anzaldúa's book, um, "This Bridge We Call This Bridge Call My Back." In a, book, in a used bookstore, and I bought it. And I, when I read La Prieta and when I read her theory of El Mundo Zurdo, it's like I fell in love with that idea because it expressed to me for the first time what I had been trying to get with Emerson, which was that combination of a very holistic relational worldview and social justice mm-hmm. and creating an expansive, inclusive space for everybody. I'm articulating it from now. Sure. You know, back sure. then I was fumbling around for what I was looking for. Um so, so then fast forward to my first job, where, which I'm from Chicago, and my first job was at a very, very small town in New Mexico. And it was total culture shock, and I was comparing myself to everybody else, and I felt like a total failure because I had this, like, dinky little job. And, um, but in the, in the first or second year, I had the opportunity to apply for, like, a humanities fellowship to go and spend a week at University of Arizona where Anzaldúa was doing a week-long humanities in residence, something like that, whatever. Yeah. And um, so I applied for it, and I had switched. Like I was so fascinated by her work that I had started switching from talking about Emerson's epistemology to looking at the epistemology in three lesbian women of color, Paula Gunn Allen, Gloria Anzaldúa, and Audre Lorde. And so I was working on what would become my first book, but, um, you know, as part of the application, I had to send in like what I was working on. And anyways, I was chosen for one of the three. And so I emailed Anzaldu ahead of time. And I said, I would love to interview you because all the interviews I had read, people were not seeing that spiritual element underneath, like in borderlands and things like that. Like she refers to spirit. She refers to ancestors in these ways that back in the nineties, 
scholars weren't really talking about. Mm. So she said, sure, you can interview me, but you'll have to follow. I don't know what the schedule is. So basically, I followed her around for a week. (laughs) And and just by following her around, we kind of became friends like um, and it's interesting because the first time I spotted her, I had never like met her, Mm. but I saw her in the bookstore and I was like, oh, my God, this woman is so short because that's a key part of her personality, not her personality. Her her life is just that she was so short. Anyways, um, so. I interviewed her that turned into a publication. And when I interviewed her, she was like, I might, I might want you to, I might want to do a book of interviews. So yes, but you'll have to give me, you'll have to give me the interview. And I'm like, sure, fine. Um, So then like maybe two years later, I was trying to do an interview project with a colleague and everything, you know, academics, like we can squabble and it can be pretty awful. And it was one of those awful points and I was feeling really alone. So I called Gloria and I was like, Hey, you said you wanted to do a book of your interviews. I could edit it for you. So I edited it for her. And as part of that, I went out to Santa Cruz and I interviewed her. And then when I was doing all those interviews, like the same questions kept coming up and it was all about this bridge called my back. And so then I was like, hey, it's been 20 years. Where do you think feminism is at? Where do you think this policy? She also used the phrase spiritual activism for one of the first times in my interview with her. Where do you think spiritual activism is now? So I said, why don't we do a follow-up? And like, she was like, oh, anthologies are like a lot of work. I have to think about that. Mm. But eventually she agreed. So that's how we really became friends because I would go out, you know, I used to call it Camp Anzaldúa. I would just go out and work, you know, we would work and, and stuff like that. So that's, that's how. And we have the same uh, obsessive writing in the sense of revision and revision. So I think she really appreciated my reading of her manuscripts because I gave her the same kind of picky stuff that she seemed to really like. Like, that's Mm. just how I think about writing. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So, so, and my, like the larger framing for me personally is it was through some, through what I thought of as some really like unpleasant things in my life that the friendship happened and developed. Mm. That's nice. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. um, I guess, you know, I was also wondering if you could share with our listeners a bit about a bit of Ansel Dua's biography. I know you do some in the book, but I was wondering if you could share a little bit with us. Absolutely. She was born in 1942 in the Rio Grande Valley, like in Hargill, Texas. Um, She was the oldest child. Uh, She had a really rare hormonal disorder that she started spotting, like menstrual blood, spotting when she was an infant. She went Mm. through full-blown puberty at the age of six. Mm. So the whole time she was growing up, she was marked, not just because she was, uh, you know, Spanish-speaking, her her family's first language was Spanish. So when she started school down in the valley, which was very racist, she was treated differently because she was uh, Mexican-American or whatever words they would have used then, not Chicana. But, Mm -hmm. you know, she was treated differently for that. But also she was different because she shot up to her adult height of like four feet, 10, maybe when she was pretty young. So she was really thin and she had this period that she had to hide from uh, her siblings as well as from the students. So she really got a very strong understanding of difference um, in a way that she then, I think it's part of why she's so inclusive. Um, And then also she just, what do I want to say about that? Um, she just like really had an urge for social justice that mm. came partially out of that. Mm. Um, she went to college, uh, took her a little longer her because de- her dad died when she was pretty young. Um, she got her master's in education. She worked in the public school system. She worked as the liaison in Indiana for um, 
migrant children. So she had a lot of education experience. And then she was ABD at UT Austin. Then eventually she decided to commit her life to her writing. So she moved out to California. Um, she was the co-editor of this bridge called my back mm-hmm. writings by radical women of color, which was groundbreaking, right. In terms of like right. the theory and really saying women of color are feminists and feminism has never been a white women's movement. It's always been more diverse. Um, and then borderlands La Frontera the Mestiza is her special claim to fame. Um, because of how she articulated the borderland and how she articulated world traveling and how she worked with multiple languages. Um, But after that, she kept writing. She produced many theories, um, several other edited and collections, two bilingual children's books. And she was working on, um, and she had gone back to graduate school in 88. So she was working on her dissertation, the second iteration of her dissertation (laughs) at the time of her death. So Mm. that's a little bit. She's especially known... for she should be more known for being an innovator in queer theory. She was using queer at UC Santa Cruz before the term took off. Mm-hmm. Um, so she's really a founding figure in that. And of course, Chicano studies, lesbian studies, feminist studies. Right. All right. Wonderful. Um, uh, as I understand it, Enzo Du had a very diverse writing practice, and you also kind of, you know, highlight this in the book. And I, I'm wondering if you could say something about her process and how she made theory. Yeah. So her process was extremely um, dialogic. She was in dialogue with everything in her life um, in ways that she turned it, she reflected on it and turned it into theory. She thought about it. Um, For her writing practice itself, she often used spiritual technologies like the I Ching, um, Mm. tarot, Mm. to be in conversation with these larger kinds of forces. Um, She was clearly in conversation with the landscape. Um, She was in conversation with her memories of her childhood. And so she brought all of that into what she wrote. She had extensive journaling, extensive what she called writing notas, which are kind of like stream of consciousness, that when an opportunity came, and I call them, I can't remember, I call them like, they're little engines for the theories. Mm. You know, hey, will you speak here? Or hey, will you do this? Mm. That became, because she was trying very hard to make her living through the writing, so she didn't have the luxury of like, let me go sit down and write a classic, right? Right. So those became opportunities to pull together some of her ideas. And then she was in dialogue, not just with the audience, but she had writing comadres. She really liked to get feedback and back and forth um, on her process. And she was she was very much a perfectionist. She rearranged things a lot. She looked for patterns. um, And especially at the end of her life, I think she was so much a perfectionist that it really kind of uh, paralyzed her. Mm -hmm. Uh, okay. In, in the book, you spotlight 18 of Enzo Duan's uh, uh, theories, and I'm wondering if you could summarize a couple for the listener. You, you don't have to do all 18, but maybe summarize a couple, um, like maybe Napantalera, and you said spiritual activism, of course, was a very important um, yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Um, yeah. yeah. I'm trying to offer a really diverse range of her theories, including some that started very early in her life. Mm-hmm. And we could, even though she didn't use the term Let's start with spiritual activism, which I love because spiritual is the adjective modifying the noun, which is activism. Mm. So even in the term itself, it helps us to avoid spiritual bypassing. It helps Mm. us to avoid that, like, let me just escape into meditation or Mm. let me just escape into conversations with my spirit guides or all of that. But rather, the spiritual component became a source of knowledge and sustenance 
new insights and the energy to continue and to deal with stress and trauma for the activism. So they really went together. She, one could say that she started developing that theory in the late seventies when she would start her talks with meditation mm-hmm. or, you know, really try to pull in some of these spiritual technologies at a time when she was also dealing with a lot of like uh, socialists and people who like really like were behind certain interpretations of Marx and saw that as escapist. Like she still tried to pull all of that in. So spiritual activism, it also kind of draws on that uh, ancient, is it hermetic? I don't know. Mm. As above, so below, as within, so without. It's a kind of relational holism. So by aligning oneself internally, as one moves through the world, one can more effectively act in the outer world, right? So mm. it's bringing those together. So it's it's a, it's a um, I think it's a great approach to social justice work, but also to a kind of profound holistic self-care. Mm-hmm. Um, and and she talks and she talks about it in some of her um, writings. Like she saw so many activists burn out early. Like mm-hmm. how do we keep from burning out? And so spiritual activism and the tools for that became part of it. She especially talks about it in her interviews and in Light in the Dark. Mm-hmm. Um, is that good? Yeah, that's great. How about okay. Napantalera? Because I love that for like therapists. And Isn't stuff. that great? <laughs> so her Napantalera is a word that she herself invented. Yeah. And she invented it by taking the concept of Napantla. So Napantla is the Nahuatl word, which means in between or liminal. Um, it has many meanings. And for Anzaldúa, Napantla was that chaotic space of potential transformations. Mm-hmm. You don't know what will happen. It's just everything is just, it's all, it's gone mm-hmm. to shit, you know. Yeah. Everything is just like really chaotic but Napantla is that space where transformation can happen. Acknowledging it's really painful. It's not like skipping into the rainbows and being happy, 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 right? Mm-hmm. So Napantletas are people who have gone through those kinds of liminal transformations. And instead of being like, I'm healed now, I'm this, or I'm healed now, I'm that, they choose to stay within that margin or that limit, and they live from that space. Mm-hmm. So as they go through their lives, they are mediators. Mm. They listen to all sides, including the crappiest of sides, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. To try to find ways to create new commonalities, not sameness. And Anzaldúa, she developed that theory in part through her through going to NWSA, National Women's Studies Association conference. She was at the conference in 1981, I think, mm. when women of color walked out. Uh, many women of color walked out because they just accused the organization of being too racist. She mm. was there because her book, Making Face, Making So Las Siendo Caras, which is an edited collection of writings by women of color feminists, they were uh, introducing it, it like it just been published. So she was there with some of the people from that, from the book. And so instead of leaving, she tried to witness to all sides. And we see that experience kind of turned into a theoretical poetic narrative um, in light in the dark. Mm. So that, that's, that's a napant letter. It's like a threshold person. Yeah, and I'm imagining. What are your thoughts about current times? Like, do we we really kind of need those? That kind. We of... need those so much. <laughs> yeah. uh, the oppositionality is not working. It's no. just not working. No. We have lost. Not like it's harder to listen, right? Because mm-hmm. all of those categories are just like ah, this is a white person, or ah, this is a that, or a mm-hmm. that, or a Christian, or whatever. And then everybody reacts to the label or the word or what they see instead of even stopping to listen. Hmm. Okay, more, more about that in a sec, but um, what are your suggestions for someone interested in working with Anzal Dua's theories? What do you, Yeah, I know you touch on this in the book, but what do you recommend? Um, I say follow your heart. 
see which theories are most interesting to you. Trust that they're kind of calling out something in you. Learn about them. Know that Anzaldúa, Anzaldúa, like, she devoted her life to her writing and making theory, right? Mm -hmm. She was close to her family. She had friends, but it's almost like she kept putting herself in situations where romantic relationships didn't work out. She intentionally wanted to live alone because she, she, she even talks about being married to the writing. She sacrificed everything for that. So to be like, Oh, I can't touch that theory because I'm not Chicana or, Oh, I'm not lesbian. I can't do that or whatever. To me, that does Anzaldúa a disservice. She, she saved everything. She put it out there. She wanted people to use it. It's very clear in some of her writing that she did. And I definitely touch on that because it's so important. So I say, follow your interest, engage with intellectual humility. I think like I, I think I know a lot about her theories, but I'm still learning more. And, and I think that's important to be able to say, well, yeah, I, this was too limited of a view, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like this or it's like that. So be open to expanding it. And I think people who don't speak Spanish, like just try to learn the pronunciation. of, yeah. And that's, you know, that, that's my job. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And thank you for saying that. And I, cause I've always, I'm drawn to her work and, um, and have accessed it and like, I've been influenced by it. So I, yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I guess my next question is how, how do you imagine, I'm, I'm thinking about contemporary times, I kind of touched on it, but how do you imagine Anzal Dua might meet our current challenges? It, what might she say about the way through what we're experiencing now? That, it was such a great question because it was really hard for me not to bring what I think into it. And I probably am, but I think that when we look at light in the dark, mm -hmm. We look at the first chapter. The first chapter, she is reacting to 9-11. So she's reacting to the bombings, to the specifically to, especially to New York City, but just to the whole, both to the U.S. being attacked and then to the United States turning around and attacking, right? Mm -hmm. And I think when we look at that, we get some ideas about the process involved, which is like acknowledging everything we feel, anger, and, you know, she's really mad at Bush, as one can imagine, mm -hmm. given when, you know, the invasion was authorized, mm -hmm. but then kind of stepping back and trying to see it from multiple perspectives. And then she kind of like, uh, in, in, in that, in that chapter, she kind of tries to engage in a dialogue with nature. So I think that offers us some insight in the need for reflection really listening and somehow seeing this is where I don't know if I'm imposing myself, but I don't think I am like still having hope. Right. Yeah. Cause we still have to have hope that there can be a way through it. Like this isn't just it. It's not just like everything is on a slow slide downward and mm. that's it. Right. Mm. It would be like listening, like, you know, yeah. 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 Do you find her work hopeful? Do I find her work help hopeful? Ho hopeful. Yeah. Hopeful. Yes. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, she, and, and I have to say even more so since I've spent so much time with her unpublished writing, she suffered very severely from depression, mm. like really a lot. Mm. And the fact that she kept on writing the fact that she still had this inclusive perspective, she was shut out. I mean, like she experienced some like really intense rejections and yet she still insisted on a very, inclusive vision yeah 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 
Okay, um, I'm going to shift gears a little bit now. So you are a theorist as well. You've been a past guest on this podcast, and you've been quite influential on me and others that I know and uh, around your ideas on post-oppositional thought and practice. You know, Transformation Now is a favorite book, right? And I, I, I was wondering how you're thinking about your work, post-oppositional practice theory, uh, even with everything going on today, too. Where, where are you at these days? Um, I think post-oppositionality is even more necessary now, right? Yeah. I don't think that just reacting against is going to get us anywhere else. I think it's going to get us even more entrenched. Um, I think I would add to that, I think even more, and I talk, like I think, I've also talked about invitational pedagogies. Mm-hmm. I really do mm-hmm. think that post-oppositionality is invitational, right? Mm-hmm. I think we can live in a post-oppositional way, and I think we can have conversations with certain people, but I think those people who are really locked into opposition will just react even more strongly to post-oppositionality. Mm-hmm. And, and, I, and I hadn't realized how much some people could hate. Because to me, you know, I guess I have too much of that kumbaya, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, right, like, right, so, yeah. so that was kind of uh, stunning to me that some people could hate it, <laughs> right? That's okay. That's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, so that part, and then also I'm really, as I think more about like, where's it going next? What do I want to do with it? I'm thinking about how deeply trauma lives in our bodies mm. and how that can be brought into post-oppositionality or how mm. that can play a role in some kind of healing process mm-hmm. that then can set us up to just continue and to have those really hard conversations. Right. Wonderful. Okay. Uh, last question. Um, and I always like to ask this of everybody these days, but what books, film, thinkers, ideas, what's capturing your attention these days? What's energizing you? Oh boy. Um, <laughs> so as I like, because I don't think that the ideas we're working with are sufficient, mm. I'm very interested in how we can expand our thinking. And I, and this was, I blame Anzal Dua for this. I am fascinated by astrology mm-hmm. and I don't mean pop astrology. I mean, Hellenistic and archetypal astrology that has gone back and retranslated ancient texts to really understand what our um, Egyptian, Greek, Roman, Arab forefathers and some mothers mm-hmm. were doing, as well as just looking I mean, there's a lot of validity to it. So I want to try to understand it better so that I can understand how it can be used for social justice. I think it's like really profound. I think it's uh, it's Westerners. It's a really important access for Westerners into a very ancient spiritual tradition that sees everything as interrelated. And yeah, I'm yeah. fascinated by that. The interrelated so that, yeah. Yeah. Um, Jeffrey uh, Kripals, so he's a religious studies scholar. Um, he has a new book called The Superhumanities. Yeah. Um, I, have you heard of it? Yeah, I, I bought it when you posted it on Facebook. <laughs> I've loved his book, his work since Authors of the Impossible. Yeah. He he is helping to uh, make the paranormal academically valid, hmm. so that other people will be able to use it. And I think of Anzal Dua's theory of La Facultad, which really is, is it's about psychic powers in part. Hmm. So this becomes a way to kind of think about these things. It becomes a way to think much more broadly about where we might go. Hmm. I um, 
So I'm, I'm not too far into it yet. So I can't really say more about it than that, but I do like his work mm. and um, I, I love what he's done. You know, they have a whole archives at Rice University. It's filled with parent. It's amazing. Like you should just Google it. Mm-hmm. It's filled with like, it's one of, it's one of the best sources of archival material about UFOs, um, remote viewing, the whole cold yeah, war remote yeah, viewing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, like it's wild at Rice, but it, yeah, Rice University oh, well, of okay. all places. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> so that's great because I like to see like academic outliers because mm-hmm. you know I, I kind of am too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then I'm reading, you know, because I do yoga teacher ch- training, yeah, <laughs> so right. I'm reading. I'm reading Patanjali's Yoga Sutras and mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> as well. So those are so those are kind of the things. And I and I think all of it is just as I'm thinking about what does spiritual activism look like. Right. How can we practice it? Okay. Wonderful. Now, uh, one last question. So, how does everybody find the book? Where to? Uh, what, what What do you recommend? Yeah. Um, they can go to Duke University Press and buy it online there, mm-hmm. or they can get it. And I can't remember the code. There's actually a code to get thirty percent off. Oh. Um, well, if you email I, it to I, me, I'll I'll email it to yeah, you, yeah. and I'll email you the link. Yeah, because yeah. that's like and great; it makes it. it like twenty bucks. Um, or I think it'll be available on Amazon pretty soon. Sure. Okay. Uh, and Louise, it's great to see you again, and thank you for taking the time to share with us. And I just really appreciate you being here. Thank you so much. Thanks for the opportunity, yeah. and I appreciate it. Well, that's our show. And as always, thanks for listening. And just a quick reminder to go get the call. Go to my Instagram page, the Radical Therapist Instagram page. Go to the link in the bio and you can get the call for the Radical Encyclopedia. We would love you to participate. So, And please come visit me in New York City. If you're in or near New York City, come say hi. I'd love to see you at the Printed Matter Art Book Fair. It'll be exciting. Um, so come out for that. And yeah, so if you can find me, if you want to email me, it's radicaltherapist at gmail.com. I'm on Instagram, the Radical Therapist, and there's a Radical Therapist Facebook page. Go check that out. And yeah, I think that's all I have for you. So, you know, as always, I'm Dr. Chris Hoff. This has been the Radical Therapist Podcast. We appreciate you listening. Peace.